Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Harry, what has the great vending machine of life provided this week? I think possibly the most controversial sweets that we've ever had on this on Ooh. this podcast. Um, you remember that in the old days, there used to be you, there used to be toys, and then there was a sort of knockoff version you could buy at the market. So there was like Action Man, but then at the market there'd be something called something like Dynamite Guy. And your uncle would buy it for you at Christmas. And then a week after Christmas, there'd be a report on Nationwide warning you that this toy burst into flames if exposed to sunlight. Um, and so I've got a kind of equivalent of that. They're called, they're called the Sour Patch Kids, um, which sounds a bit like Cabbage Patch Dolls, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And the Cabbage Patch Dolls, remember, that in the, in the early 80s, they were the sort of one of those toys. I think possibly the first of those toys that there was a shortage of at Christmas, and there were riots in toy shops with parents trying to get hold of a Cabbage Patch Doll and police firing guns in the air to disperse the crowd and things like that. But the people who make the Cabbage Patch Kids are incredibly litigious and have sued people all over the world for copyright infringement. So the people who made Sour Patch Kids are, are treading dangerously, I think. And um, aside from that, the actual Sour Patch Kids themselves, they're, they're little sort of, um, I suppose, like jelly babies, but they look quite like Bart Simpson, except they come in a variety of flavours. And I have to say that the black currant flavoured one looks very like the sort of thing you might have seen on the jar of uh, on a jar of jam back in Latin, less enlightened times. So I imagine that at some point during this podcast, there'll be a knock on the door, and trading standards officers will confiscate these sweets from me. <laughs> I passed a charity shop window last weekend that had six cabbage patch kids in the in, in, on display, which was just absolutely terrifying. And they're really them. horrendous, aren't they? <laughs> I can't why anyone wanted them. <laughs> just shows it just proves the Mark Twain thing that in order to make somebody something you know people want things you just have to make it unobtainable. <laughs> I didn't go in the charity shop because I was so terrified. No, that's, I can that's imagine how bad it was. <laughs> but that, if they were in, if if you came home at night, you know, and you saw, and it was sitting on the, you'd think it had moved, wouldn't you? You say, oh, I think that I th- was it there. Was it there when we went out? <laughs> Any other important stirrings in Northumbria? Um, well, I, I was talking to my mum the other day, and my mum's got dementia, so she doesn't remember. She has very bad short-term memory, but she has vivid memories of events that happened in the past, sometimes events that didn't happen in the past <laughs> as well, I should say. And I said to her, oh, did you ever go? Did you ever go to Ayrson Park? Because I've never really asked her about it. And she said she only ever went once, and she went to see Middlesbrough play the Busby Babes. And I thought, well, I don't she didn't think that can be true, because Middlesbrough got relegated in 1954, but she said that she was back on, uh, she's back just back from teacher training college in Coventry, and so I think it must have been a game in 1953 uh, when Middlesbrough did play Manchester United, and oh. and it did include some of the Busby Babes, Ray Wood, Tommy Taylor, and Roger Byrne. And I said to my mum, you know what's, what, Duncan Edwards, I think played that season, but he didn't play in that game. Um, and I said to my mum, what do you remember about it? And she said, I couldn't, I don't remember, I couldn't see anything at all. And I said, why was that because of the crowd? And she said, no, because I didn't have my glasses on. <laughs> And I said, why didn't you have your glasses on? He said, well, there was all those men there, and I thought they'd tease me. So she said the whole game was just a complete blur, which obviously was for the Middlesbrough team as well because they lost 4-1. There's probably a lot of people in the crowd who wish they'd they'd left their glasses off as well, I would imagine. Um, And that Man United team, actually, we talked about uh, footballers whose names seem too posh for professional footballers. The centre-half that day for Manchester United was Alan B. Chilton. It does sound like a Noel Coward character, but he was actually born in um, Hilton, just a few miles from Horatio Carter. 
sort of teamed up together. I suppose he was one of those people, I think we've mentioned it before, there was a tradition in the northeast of uh, firstborn sons getting their mother's maiden names as their as their first name. A bit like Corbett Cresswell would be another example of that, I think. In the Middlesbrough team that day, there was a man called Ray Billcliffe who actually holds a Middlesbrough record, Dan. Do you know what that is? Oh, no. No, well, he's, he's, the, he's, the, he's the outfield player who played the most games for Middlesbrough without scoring a goal, <laughs> which is a very Middlesbrough record, <laughs> yes. isn't it, to hold? That's yes. the most Borough record you could possibly hold. Played over 200 games for Middlesbrough and didn't score a goal and then went on to play for Hartlepool, played over 100 games for Hartlepool and didn't score a goal for them either. 299 league games, no goals. Is that a record? I'm sure it isn't. But anyway, it's a fine effort. And he had also annoyed the club, apparently. He annoyed the club because he had a knee injury. He's been treated by the team doctor and secretly went off and saw a physiotherapist. And the club were livid because in those days, physiotherapists were regarded pretty much as witch doctors. It's the 1950s. So, I mean, nowadays they'd send him off to see a homeopathic dentist, wouldn't they, or something? Um, but anyway, also in the middle of the team that day, another, another unusual character, Harry Bell. And Harry Bell had been spotted by the then Middlesbrough manager David Jack while playing in a -a five-a-side tournament at Sunderland Greyhound Stadium. I should say that David Jack was the first, when he he signed for Arsenal from Bolton, I think he was the first five-figure transfer in the whole history of football. And David Jack's full name was David Bone Nightingale Jack. I don't know, Bone and Nightingale. They sound like a, a BBC uh, Saturday Night Detective duo. You know, so Bone and Nightingale, Felicity Kendall and Patricia Hodge, antique dealers and amateur sleuths. Anyway, but uh, David Jack was at Sunderland Greyhound Stadium, um, not as a punter, but because as well as managing Middlesbrough Football Club, he also managed Sunderland Greyhound Stadium. So it's from you think nowadays we're told that football management is a 24-7 job, but obviously not in the, not in the 1950s it wasn't. I absolutely love the the fact the player played 299 games because maybe he avoided the 300th in case they let him score and he just wanted to retire. They might, have done, they might let him take a penalty score. or something. <laughs> the, the other player who was in that team as well was a guy called Jeff Walker from Middlesbrough. He, he played for Middlesbrough, but he lived in Bradford and he never moved from Bradford. And apparently if Middlesbrough were playing at home against a team from the West Riding of Yorkshire, he used to get a lift with the opposition team on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and that there and back. So he went once, I think, with Huddersfield Town, and I think he scored and Middlesbrough beat them 4 0. And I think in Harry Glasper's history of Middlesbrough, he says it must have been an uncomfortable bus journey home for him. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine travelling on the opposition bus. <laughs> it's just <laughs> catching a lift. And what news from there, Andy? Well, I should just say, as you were talking, I was just looking at which Everton player. I thought it would be Tony Hibbert, actually, who'd played the most games without scoring. He scored 206, played 265 league games for Everton without scoring. And he was a player at Everton fans. I remember one saying, once saying, if he'd played for Spurs, if he'd spent his career with Spurs rather than Everton, he'd have one England cap, which I think is probably true. Um, just as Leon Osman, who played twice for England, would have had six England caps if he'd been a Spurs player. Anyway, that's a, <laughs> a diversion. Um, well, I've just actually just as we're talking, I've just received an email with a subject line: "Stop stressing about cat urine." But I never have. I mean, I know it smells bad. It? it smells like ammonia, doesn't it? The little devils for that kind of thing. But I've never worried about it before. I'm now wondering what Google searches have I been doing that could, could have led me to get this email. Anyway, I'll, I'll have to look in further into that. Um, our weekly newsletter, The Howl. Last week, uh, John Hockley sent us a photo of perimeter advertising at the Wrexham Grimsby National League playoff final from Peter Gwynn and Sons, who are potato merchants in Wrexham, supplies to the trade. And their slogan which is on all these perimeter boards, which is eat more chips. 
which I thought was pretty good. When they, <laughs> when they were thinking up a slogan, they probably wrote that down first and thought, well, we'll come back to it a bit later and then looked at it later and thought, actually, you know, that's not bad, is it? Well, we'll it, it's it's simple, it's direct. We'll go with that. So so they have, and it was at Wembley. Um, you may have seen the FA have apparently asked the, the, the Premier League at the behest of Gareth Southgate that for the last round of fixtures before the break for the World Cup, um, which is only eight days before the start of the tournament, that none of the big six clubs should play each other, presumably on the basis that these games are thought to be more physically demanding than a kind of routine win over a newly promoted club or, or uh, Everton or whatever, but um, which I think is debatable in any case, because several England players are going to come from other, from clubs outside the big six, I would think, and Leicester, West Ham and so on. So it has been suggested that maybe the, what's behind this partly is this, there might be some bad feeling as a result of a recent game, you know, some Liverpool and Man City players not getting on because they're sort of squared up to each other in their final league game. That might not be the best thing for, for squad harm. And anyway, we'll see what happens when the fixtures come out. But I think it's a, it's an outrageous um, manipulation of fixtures if it does actually happen, I must say. Um, uh, we received an email from a betting company this week that says that they analysed the st- statistics of all the forwards who played more than a 1,000 minutes in the Premier League last season to see which player had the worst minutes per contribution. And the top was Adam Traore, one goal and no assists in 1,067 minutes. For all, was one of four Wolves players in the top 20. They only played half a season with them. On the other end, at the top of the table, is, um, or bottom of the table, if you look at it, is Mo Salah. Contribution every 77 minutes, 23 goals and 13 assists. But I started to think, well, what's my minute per contribution? What are my minute per contribution <laughs> stats to society in general? Probably not as good as one every 1,067 minutes. I mean, I can probably go for days without making what could be assessed as a, as a meaningful contribution, I think. So it just shows how hard footballers really work, which we should get off their backs. <laughs> One thing Adam Traore is good at, uh, rarely for a modern footballer, when we used to wait for autographs when he was at he used to pat my daughter on the head, which was quite an old old style footballer manoeuvre. Yeah, maybe it was so, a look, maybe it's a look thing. Like once yeah. every five children. Well, she wasn't very good the then, head. was she? <laughs> no. And now it's time for me to repeat this. Inspired by modern football super clubs, we're delighted to announce that the When Saturday Comes podcast is going on its first ever tour to spread the brand around the world. Taking in non-league clubhouses up and down the country, the WSC team will be joined by some very special guests for evenings of half-decent football chat. Each event will also host a touring WSC photo exhibition. First up, Andy, Harry and I will be at South Shields this coming Thursday from 7pm where you can expect exotic snacks, live versions of features such as record breakers and possibly an appearance from a portable random topic generator. After that, there's a Euro 2022 special at Lewis FC on Thursday, June 30th, where from 7pm, women's football expert Sophie Lawson and Jesse Parker-Humphreys join Anne-Marie Batson for an evening of Euros chat past and present. In November, we'll be heading to West Didsbury and Charlton for a World Cup warm-up, and then in December, you can join us for the WSC Christmas party at Dulwich Hamlet. Tickets are £20 or £15 for early birds if you get in quick. See more details and get your tickets at whensaturdaycomes.eventbrite.co.uk.
issue 422 of When Saturday Comes magazine is out on June 16th and joining me to probe its pages is assistant editor Fionn Thomas. Fionn, tell us about some of the contents in this month's issue. Yeah, it's uh, just gone to press this one and it's our Women's Euro special um, with, of course, the essential giant wall chart included, uh, which we've got <laughs> illustrated by Natalie Griffiths, who has done a lovely job for us. Um, and with uh, England hosting and the final being at Wembley, uh, she's gone for a bit of a London underground theme on it. So, mm. yeah, it looks looks very nice and uh, can highly recommend getting yourself one. And the tournament starts on July the 6th, so you do now need to start clearing the space on your wall and practising your neat handwriting. Uh and also send us a photo on Twitter of yeah. your wall chart when it's up so we can judge everyone's fridge magnets. <laughs> Inside, there's more. We've got a um, preview of the tournament. So four groups. Um, we've got Catherine Eto and Jesse Parker-Humphreys have taken on the job for us. Um, looking at uh, Group A, we've got England, who are the hosts. Uh, they've got Northern Ireland in there as well with them. 5-0 um, to England when they met in April. Uh, so we'll see if there's a repeat of that. Um, you've got to have a group of death. That's Group B uh, with Spain, Germany and Denmark. Uh, group C has got the Netherlands, who are the holders, uh, plus Portugal, who were the, the late entry to replace Russia. And then Group D is uh, pretty open with France, Italy, Belgium and Iceland, whose fans are hopefully going to bring their Viking clap to Manchester and Rotherham. Uh, I'm sure I've never seen the likes. <laughs> and then, as we always do before a tournament, we've incorporated some interesting facts about the players wherever possible. Um, so some of my highlights from that. Uh, Beth Mead, her nan, has an England garden gnome, and whenever her granddaughter plays, she rubs its boot. Um, Alexandra Pop of uh, Germany, she's recently completed a three-year apprentice as a zookeeper. Oh. And uh, Jana Turlings of Belgium once did 7,500 keepy-uppies in under an oh, hour. Incredible. I mean, hopefully she doesn't do that in a game because I, I don't think anyone's got time for that. Uh, but, yeah, lots more lots more fascinating facts like that in the, in the previews by Catherine and Jesse. So uh, get your copy and you can impress people in the pub with your knowledge. It would actually be hard to tackle someone doing keepy-uppies, wouldn't it, without going high, without going over the knee? So it's a good good idea from a possession stat point of view. Oh yeah, your your possession stats would be out of this world. <laughs> Retaining possession, very good. I'm sure there's a stat for that. A bit of stat chat from this podcast for the first time ever. <laughs> yes, carry on, Fion. Tell us more. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, a few other bits on uh, women's football in this issue as well. Um, we've got an extract from Suzanne Rack's new book, A Woman's Game. She's going to be on this podcast a bit later having a chat about it. So uh, the extract we've got uh, is about the madness of the unofficial Women's World Cup in Mexico 1971. Um, we've got a lovely object lesson feature uh, from Flora Snelson, reminiscing about the posters she had on her childhood bedroom wall of uh, England women footballers back in, back in the day when they weren't quite such uh, recognisable figures. And then we're continuing our theme of the focus on photo feature about the playing careers of managers, uh, looking at Hope Powell, who was a former England manager and currently manages Brighton Women. Um, and then other than that, uh, all the usual WSE stuff, um, of course, covering the chaos at the uh, Champions League final uh, around the Stade de France before and after the game. Um, so Rob Hughes uh, is, looks at the shambolic organisation on the night and then the, the blame game really played by UEFA and the local authorities, which is still sort of playing its way out. Um, 
I mean, he, he makes the point that Liverpool have, have been very quick to get supporters to come forward with their experiences of what happened, and that amid all the depressing parallels with Hillsborough uh, around the sort of smearing and accusations and deflection of responsibility that's been going on, um, now we're 33 years on, social media and everyone having a camera in their pocket means fans do actually have more of a voice now. Um, even since we've gone to press a couple of days ago, uh, there's been reports that the, the CCTV at the Stade de France from that day has already been deleted. So yeah. that sort of reinforces the point and that sort of fan-filmed evidence uh, is going to be even more important. Mm. More that time of year, isn't it? More pieces on finals. Um, we've got one about the Europa League final from Ian Plenderleith, who's lived in Frankfurt and followed Eintracht for, for many years, but his father was a, is a Rangers fan. So he had some slightly split loyalties for that game. Um, and then the match of the month, uh, we did the championship playoff final, uh, Forest against Huddersfield at Wembley. Uh, we sent David Stubbs there and uh, got some brilliant photos from Paul Thompson to go with it. Um, I always think about the championship playoff final that it's visually the best game you can get at Wembley because all three tiers are sort of filled with fans yeah. rather than the type of people who, who aren't really bothered and, and don't rush back after halftime. So uh, it always visually looks, you get half a stadium of red and half a stadium of blue in, as in this game. Um, which which always looks special and obviously a better atmosphere as well. Um, and as David says, if Forrest's 1-0 win wasn't the best game, he says, not the, not the finest football, but a fine footballing day featuring two teams who are reminders of the game's more egalitarian past, mm. which is, which is yeah, a nice sentiment, yeah. I think. And uh, congratulations to Forrest. And shot features York, of course, which is a good thing. Yes, uh, yeah. So that was a playoff semi-final for that one yeah. uh, when they went to Brackley, and uh, uh, yeah, and uh, they they are looking at the league table. The York were twenty-one points behind Brackley in the league table, yeah. uh, and ended up going all the way through the playoffs. So it's a beautiful miracle, Fiona. Beautiful. Miracle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else have we got? Pieces on Wales and Scotland uh, in the World Cup playoffs. Uh, one of those slightly happier than the other. Uh, as you might imagine. And uh, Hugh Richards points out in his piece on Wales that qualifying after the gap of 64 years since our last World Cup in 58 uh, means we overtake, I'm saying we, because it's Wales, uh, it means we overtake Egypt and Norway, who previously held the record of 56 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so now the next potential breaking of that record is going to be for Cuba and Indonesia, <laughs> who are on 84 years and counting. Yes. So, so they need to buck their ideas up, yeah. really. And, uh, and get themselves in a World Cup. Otherwise, it's going to be Wales for a long time. <laughs> and then what else have we got? we got looking at what might be in store for Burnley and Watford uh, after Premier League relegation. Um, got a piece on Jake Daniels at Blackpool, uh, who came out last month. Um, got a piece on Gateshead, uh, just promoted to the National League. Yeah. Uh, and a piece on ADHD in football by Heather Mickell, who's uh, one of our mentees on our recent women in football mentoring scheme uh, so yeah lots going on and your wall chart as well so yeah out next week yeah loads of stuff in there go out and get yours jackpot tickets pound a goal draw at half time win 500 pounds yours tonight jackpot tickets pound a goal draw at half time 500 pound prize draw get your hats and scarves and pin badges your hats and scarves and pin badges Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Pin badges, hats, scarves. Hats and scarves and pin badges. Program. 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 Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping 
which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Jackpot tickets, pound a go, draw it half time, 500 pounds, yours to take on tonight. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Kerala Blasters, Mark Grew, the use of the groundsman's lawnmower as a metaphor in Marcel Proust in search of lost time. And it's landed on lower division teams in major cup finals and other unlikely cup finalists. What a long title from the random topic generator. Just squeezed that on there. Amazing. Harry, what the bejesus does that bring to mind? Well, I'm not really, well, sort of, like, I don't really know. They're not lower division because they're not they're unlikely finalists. I have to think of the of L- the London eleven that played in the Fairs Cup final of 1958. Um, the Fairs Cup, that the, you had to be, a, you had to come from, it was very complicated, wasn't it? You had to be somewhere that had hosted a, a trade fair, a world trade fair. And when you could only, but you could only pick one club from that city. But London decided not to pick one club. They decided to have this combined London team that played in it. And the, the Fairs Cup, <laughs> finally in 1958, it actually took three years. <laughs> the competition took three years from, it started in 1955 and finished in 1958. Uh, the London 11 played eight, eight matches. Um, but they use they use players from all across London, so they actually used used fifty four players. And fantastically, the team was managed by Joe Mears, who was the chairman of Chelsea. So if if the competition had happened thirty years later, Ken Bates would have been the manager of the London Eleven. If we could, uh, lots of lots of um, uh, players played for that team, um, Bedford Jezard was there, an old favourite of this podcast, and also a lot of. Um, Famous managers, future managers, Malcolm Allison, John Bond, Bobby Robson, Ken Brown, all all played for the London Eleven in that in that uh, lengthy Fairs Cup run, probably the longest <laughs> cup run in history. Um, and they got to the final in uh, '58, and they played Barcelona. Uh, they drew two two at Stamford Bridge, uh, but then lost six nil in the Camp Nou uh, with a, a team that the the team that drew two two. I think it had Bobby Smith and Jimmy Greaves up front, but Jimmy Greaves didn't play in the second leg, and they lost six nil. So that, they were pretty a, a very unusual final, certainly unlikely, and it never happen again. I don't think will it. Looking around the world as well, or looking back in England, sorry, I'd, I'd say that uh, Queen's Park Rangers, of course, uh, then in the third division, uh, played in the, the 1967 League Cup final. Um, and then they were then in Division 3. They beat West Brom 3-2. They should have they should have played in Europe because they're supposed to, the, the winners of the League Cup were supposed to play in Europe in the Fairs Cup. But the Fairs Cup rules it said that it had to be a first division team. So QPR weren't allowed to play in it. Um, but they had a team then that included uh, Roger Morgan and Ian Morgan as well. He was, they were identical twins, and they had slightly different haircuts so people could tell them apart. But Ian Morgan was only on the bench. Otherwise, I would think, would there, has there ever been a, a pair of identical twins who played in a cup final in England? Uh, maybe not. Also, Mark Lazarus was playing for QPR then, who, um, who trained as an upholsterer before becoming a footballer, uh, part of a famous East End boxing family. And, of course, they were managed by Alex Stock, who uh, we know, I think we've talked about it before, was the inspiration for Ron Manager on the Fast Show. And I'm not quite sure what Alex Stock did because uh, he was obviously a very, very successful manager and very well liked by everyone. Um, but his his assistant, Bill Dodgen, said he'd take a coaching session for a while, then he'd just throw down the whistle and go. <laughs> so I don't know what exactly he did. But anyway, so he was, so yes, so that, the QPR, I think the, you know, one of the first third division winners of a major trophy. Also, if you look around Europe, as I say, there's a few teams uh in the Coppa Italia Catanzano 
who were the finalists in 1966. They they didn't get into um, Serie A until 1971. They only played a few seasons there. They got beaten by Fiorentina. Uh, maybe we shouldn't feel too sorry for them because they were founded in 1929 as Union Sportiva Fascista Catanzarese. Um, and dropped the, obviously dropped the fascista after World War Two, but still, there we are. And uh, in in the Copa del Rey in Spain as well, 1980, uh, Real Madrid played Castilla in the final. Castilla were actually the Real Madrid youth team. Uh, they they beaten I think three or four Serie A uh, um, first division teams on the way to the final, but in the final they just completely fell apart. Strangely, and lost six one. Uh, described as a shadow of the side. That had been that had been lacing up Spanish football on the way to the final, um, but then you know they were playing they were playing their bosses effectively, weren't they? Um, also, the, in the Belgian Cup, uh, Tongeren uh, got to the final in 1974. I've actually been to Tongeren's ground, and uh, they've only ever I think they've only ever played two consecutive seasons in the top flight, and, and maybe don't exist anymore now. But Tongeren's ground actually won the end behind one goal. This is how low down they are in Belgian football. The, the end behind one goal is actually a wood. <laughs> Literally a wood behind one goal. That sounds lovely. Well, it is nice. It's like the ball. You know, it's one of the few places where the ball. You know, the ball in, a, in actual top level football, the ball disappears into a wood. <laughs> and someone was telling me last night. I was at an event last night actually, and the guy was saying that he played. He played for Ashington in the days when there was only one ball. And he said, when you played at Tau Law, if it went over one side, it went right down a bank. And sometimes it took. Sometimes it took them five minutes to get the ball back. So he said at Tau Law, sometimes they get they were actually on the pitch for about two and a half hours. <laughs> and how about for you, Andy? Well, uh, Harry's mention of Tongren getting to the Belgian Cup final, nineteen seventy four. That Tongren team, how about this Rista, includes includes the player you've seen play, Harry, for Middlesbrough. Ooh. Oh, did it? Oh, well, not Heine Otto. No, Johnny Crossan. Johnny Crossan did it. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, Northern Irish player. He played. In Europe, at the start of his career, he had this strange uh, thing where he got banned from playing in the UK because of uh, funny details over his transfer. He played in Holland and Belgium, but then came back and played for yeah for Sunderland, Middlesbrough, Man City. But at the end of his career, he'd obviously perhaps liked Belgium when he'd been there before. He spent five years with Tongren, and when he was oh, in his kind of early timid, he was a, he was a man who he actually missed some games for Middlesbrough. Because I think we may, again may have mentioned this before, but he missed some games from Middlesbrough because of chronic insomnia. Mm. So I'd be probably slept better when he was in Tongren. After a few Belgian beers, he would have got his head down. He needed one of those sleep coaches that we mentioned many podcasts. Well, that's the sort of people they'd be bringing in now. Never mind the physiotherapist as a quack; <laughs> they'd have had the, they'd have had it all. In terms of um, unlikely cup fans, not actually a lower division, but an unlikely. We should mention Malmo, Sweden, who played Nottingham Forest in um, the European Cup for 1979. You're probably, in, no disrespect to them, but probably the weakest team to play in the European Cup final, I think. Uh, though they only lost 1-0 to Forest. Though they did have a couple of first-team players missing because of injury and another one went off after about 20 minutes. So it's fair to say they weren't able to give of the best. They subsequently played in the World Club Championship, World Club Cup, Cup which in those days was just a two-leg match between the Europe, a team from Europe and a team from South America. And this is in a period when... Some European Cup winners didn't uh, want to uh, play in the match because of past violence by South American teams, particularly by Argentinian teams, and Forrest didn't play in it. So Malmo played Olympia of Paraguay, um, who in a two-leg final, only 
4,000 people saw the Mammoth Lake where they lost 1-0 and there were 47,000 in Asuncion in Paraguay <laughs> for the return. The Bobby Houghton, the Mammoth had English coach at the time, um, said due to more injuries, he ended up picking some players for those games he wouldn't even risk in the league game. So it wasn't, again, not their strongest team. So you'd think maybe Paraguayan fans at the return, like, do they think to themselves, is this the best European team at the moment? I mean, what, what's, what's going on in the old world? Are they all playing squash now or something? Where, where, they, where, you know, where are these players coming from? Anyway, it's no disrespect to Mambo, but I think that is the, generally the perception that wasn't uh, they weren't the strongest finalist. It must be one of the worst, lowest crowds as well. Those two teams, Forrest and Malmo, to ever compete in a European Cup final with the lowest average attendances, I would think. Yeah, I thought Reem in France probably had pretty low crowds. Uh, yeah, Harry mentioned... QPR in the League Cup final in 67. Of course, two years later, another team who got promotion from the third division and won the League Cup was Swindon. And and I met this is one of the very first football highlight matches I remember seeing as ITV had the rights to the League Cup in those days and they'd had have a highlight show on the Sunday afternoon. And Arsenal equalised towards the end of normal time. Swindon won 3-1 in the end. And Bobby Gould, I remember the goal scorer, one of my early memories of televised football started crying after he scored. I remember the commentator mentioning at the time, he said, Gould is crying. I think it was the first, possibly the first time I'd seen an adult cry, actually. And it was Bobby Gould. And I checked on the on the YouTube clip of that recently, and he does indeed um, start crying after he scored, the emotion of the occasion. Though he later does also sit on the floor clutching his chest at the final whistle, and the commentator then speculates whether he might have been winded. So perhaps it wasn't tears at all, the commentator says. So it was less than 25 years since the war, you know, so he needed to maybe gloss over <laughs> the possibility of somebody crying for equalising against Swindon when there, were, you know, there had been other more uh, you know, serious matters. Um, also, the League Cup should mention Bradford City were in League 2 when they got to the final against Swansea in 2013 where they, they did lose 5-0. But they'd beaten Wigan, who were then in the Premier League and, and won the FA Cup um, in earlier on penalties and Arsenal also on penalties and then played Villa also in, in the top level on, on in the semi-final, won 4-3 on aggregate. Uh, Rochdale had got to the second League Cup final as a Division 4 team in 1962 and also beat first division team Blackburn 4-3 in aggregate in the semi but um, but then lost to, to Rotherham but I can't imagine we'll be seeing that ever again so, it's, it, so I mean if that if that's happening at the rate of every uh, 50 years or so I'd, I'd, I'll be over 100 when it happens again in which case that's the thing I'll probably be talking about when I'm interviewed for the local paper about my achievement of turning 100 they'll say what's your secret for living so long and usually people say something like you know two glasses of wine a day or, you know, 30 fags or something. But I'll say I've been hanging on until another fourth division team got to the League Cup final. But then the interview will say, but the League Cup was scrapped 20 years ago after Newcastle won it 10 years in a row. And then someone will shush them and say, don't, don't let him know. That's what it's, it's, what's, it's what's been keeping him <laughs> Give him a pope. Yeah, shush. French Cup finals, Harry's mentioned some European Cups. And there have been three teams from the third and fourth divisions in France who've got to cup finals since 2000 when, when Calais did it. And they're winning at half-time against Nantes and only lost 2-1 to a 90th-minute penalty. Now, unfortunately, they weren't able, really able to build on that success and they went out of business um, five years ago. There have been another two since um, KV, who had got to the cup final when French football was amateur in the 1920s and they did it again um, a, a few years later and then or, or more recently. And I know a team called Les Herbiers, in 2018, and Les were in the third division at the time rather than the fourth division, and they were relegated to the fourth division a few weeks after the cup final. They lost to PSG. They played another third division team in the semis uh, called Chamblay, and they hadn't played any first division teams along the way. And I think after Calais got to the cup final, I remember it being reported there was a time there was a feeling 
in, among some in French football, these cup shocks, there had been quite a few, not just in terms of the final, but kind of smaller teams beating bigger teams were a bit embarrassing for French football. And Emmanuel Petit got some criticism. He was at Arsenal at the time and commented, and maybe perhaps he, he was a TV pundit in France, got a bit of flack for saying he thought that it was actually bad for French football that Calais were making were doing well and that the, these kind of top-level teams were losing uh, to lower-vision teams. Because the French Cup system does kind of help minnows a bit in general in that there's a rule that a team that's two levels below their opponents are always given a home tie, even if they're drawn away, they're allowed to play at home, which I guess means they make less money, which is obviously the reason why a lot of teams switch um, venues to, to play or have done in the past, switch venues to the bigger club. But probably does help if you've got, you know, a packed 6,000 people um, rather than playing in a half-empty kind of 40,000 stadium. Maybe we should do, maybe that's one of the things that they should try here to spice up the FA Cup. Can either of you think of any individuals that were a bit of a surprising inclusion in a cup final, whether that's a manager that got there surprisingly or a, a player, the Les Seeleys of Well, there's Morris world. Evans, who was um, manager of Oxford when they won the League Cup in, in against QPR in 86, and he'd been an assistant at Oxford to Jim Smith, who'd been the Oxford manager and then went to QPR. Um, but Jim Smith's knowledge of the Oxford players not really paying off because Oxford won the game 3-0. And Morris Evans wasn't um, was manager at Oxford for a few years, um, but was from mostly kind of a backroom guy. And kind of similarly in a way, I suppose you could say um, Tony Barton, who was Ron Saunders' assistant when Villa won the league. Um, then Saunders left during the following season, fell out with the board, and Tony Barton was in charge for the European Cup finally. He was uh, won the European Cup uh, with Villa, but uh, left a couple of years later, had one other management job, which is at Northampton, and which he retired from because of ill health. And he actually died his own in his, in his mid-50s. So I don't know whether in Europe he's kind of, because you know, there aren't that many... English managers of European Cup winning teams, well, the, the assumption is that he was a really well-known figure, but obviously he wasn't really. He was um, uh, an assistant who, um, who who took on a, a winning team, obviously did really well, um, but wasn't able for various reasons to, to kind of have a longer career in charge. But it was weird, wasn't it? He was only he only yeah. managed for three years. He was only a manager for three years. Yeah, Villa had European a fairly Cup. quick decline. They they went down, though after he left, they kind of slowly started to decline after that season. But um, he did do pretty well. I mean, he obviously had something about him, at least for a bit. Yeah. But I think he, he had he had to retire at Northampton because of his heart, and he actually mm. died of a heart attack when he's only fifty six. So maybe, yeah, you know, he just wasn't very well. He was assistant at various other clubs, wasn't he, after Northampton? But always sort of like chief scout and things like that. He yeah. was involved in football, but yeah, at a much lower level. Maybe he left to open a dog track or run a dog. Maybe track he did. He could have done that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Those were the days. Time for the part of the podcast where one of us chooses a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what's your choice this time? Well, first of all, I should say, as we're talking about music, a correction to something I said in the last episode. We were talking briefly about Wimple Winch, the psychedelic band from Stockholm, <laughs> and I said they'd done a song called <laughs> Cheadle Heath Delusions. Well, it turns out that was, in fact, by another psychedelic band from Stockport called Phileas Andromeda. It was the B-side of their one single, wasn't a hit, but was played a lot on pirate radio. So apologies to anybody from Phileas Andromeda who are listening to <laughs> I mistakenly credited your song about Cheadle Heath 
um, to Wimple Winch. Wimple Winch did a song called about Stockport called Rumble on Mersey Square South, but that's about fighting rather than about um, psych- having a psychedelic episode. Anyway, I just needed to clear that up. Nobody <laughs> got in touch about it, but just to correct the record, pun intended. Um, I thought I'd mention that. Um, also, Cheadle, of course, not very far away from Ashton Underline, the scene of my previous <laughs> enormous musical gaffe, which older uh, listeners may remember from a couple of years ago, and I got confused about where the Bee Gees were born. Ashton Underline, only 15 miles, I've just looked it up, from Cheadle, so there must be something in the area, I don't know. Something that affects me, anyway. Um, so, anyway, my, uh, my, my 45football.com choice this time is about the Danish national team. It's called Hip Hurrah for Denmark's Elf. I'm hip right for Dem- the Danish Eleven by Peter Sorensen and orchestra. And I think this may be the only record celebrating winning a silver medal in the Olympics. This was, in this case, Denmark got to the final in 1960 Olympics. They lost to Yugoslavia after they'd beaten Hungary in the semi-final. Hungary still had a good team and they lost a lot of players because they defected after the uprising, but they're still pretty strong. But this was kind of bittersweet, really, for Danish fans because three members of this team, including the star striker Harold Nielsen, who's only 18 then, then turned professional in other countries. Uh, um, Nielsen went on to win an Italian league with Bologna, um, and, and two of the other, one went to France, another one went to Italy. Those other two ended up also playing for, for Morton, who ended up having a lot of Danish players in the 60s. But once Danish players had left Denmark and were professionals, they weren't eligible for the national team anymore, as it was restricted to amateur players. So Nielsen got 15 goals in 14 international matches, all while he was a teenager. I mean, he came came pretty well known in Italy, but I think it might become more of a star internationally if he'd, if if Denmark had gone on to qualify for a major tournament, which they may not have done. But um, certainly by the mid '60s, they could have had an, an entire team of of professionals playing for them. The Danish FA didn't lift the ban um, until the early '70s, and then they didn't qualify for major finals until Euro '84, and they knocked England out. So it took them a while to adjust to having a to be able to call up all, all the kind of foreign-based players but um it's a sprightly theme anyway <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for our sprightly feature, The Final Third, in which we ask someone to help us build a football museum by donating a match, a player and an object. This time I'm joined by Susie Rack, Guardian sports writer and author of the brand new book, A Woman's Game, The Rise, Fall and Rise Again of Women's Football. A Woman's Game is out on June the 16th, Susie. Tell me what it is really, why you wanted to write it. Kind of standard book questions. Yeah, um, it's a good question because I had no intention of writing a book and was approached by an agent about possibly doing one. And um, it made a lot of sense because there's there's not really been a sort of very accessible general history of women's football written before. And we've got home Euros this summer 
and the timing just felt right for it. Um, and you know what I wanted to do and why I sort of felt good delving into it is I really wanted to make it a bit of a social political history of women's football because I think there's you know sometimes a little bit of a tendency to look at things in isolation and not really look at the things in the world that have informed why it is the way it is you know why we've had uh the most um like impressive moments for women's football at times when feminism more generally in society is in a good place uh, and things like that and like that's what i wanted to look at kind of the political and social context around the game and and sort of fit that into things a little bit and show women's football's place in the world um more generally um because yeah everything is linked and um and it's good to contextualize it like that so that's sort of why i wrote it um hated every minute of writing it <laughs> i don't recommend writing a book but um uh, yeah, actually pretty happy with the outcome in the end and the way it's turned out. I think the editors did a like really, really good job at Faber, were just so nice to work with as well, which was great. Fantastic stuff. What's the very start point of the book? Chronologically, where did you, you know, you've got this huge task in front of you, you agreed, you've signed the contract and you think, oh Christ, where, where does the book begin? Good question, because I mean, I, I thought it would begin with sort of the late 1800s and the... Um, uh, the Nettie Honeyball era, um, where Nettie Honeyball was like a sort of upper middle class woman who um, is actually like actually not really a real person. Um, it's a bit of a stage name that she used, um, and the real person's name is disputed and not necessarily widely agreed upon who it actually was. But um, yeah, so I thought it'd sort of start with her era. She founded the British Ladies Football Club, the first um sort of big international women's game of football england v scotland and you know i thought it would sort of start there but actually i delved a little bit further back than that into just sort of any examples of um women having ever been involved in football in any way so you know you, when you go back to cujo and china and the various like Han dynasty and prior to that even of men playing football there's very very small glimpses of women's involvement either as spectators or playing it um sort of just for fun um or just kicking a ball there's even some pictures um so yeah like sort of started really really early in the end um and you know even in like scotland uh way before the netty honeyball era there were married women playing against unmarried women to help uh, the local men choose uh, uh, you know people that would be good wives and things like that and um references in sort of um church records to women's football being played at like local fairs and things like that just as a sort of novelty um so I actually went quite a lot um uh, a lot further back than i ever thought it would go but again like a lot of it is you know you've got a presume a lot or caveat quite a lot because you know it's one or two bits of material that you can't necessarily totally rely on to to draw a full picture of actually what's what took place and what happened because you know so little of the history of women playing sport and football is is, is recorded or kept so it's quite hard to quite hard to find yeah i'm hooked already with that that, that prehistory i've not heard any of that stuff so yeah. absolutely wonderful uh, moving on to a later era but staying in scotland actually a friend of mine rose riley she had a 
really hard time. You know, the authorities here in, in the early 70s and mid when she was playing, it was such a terrible, terrible thing to even be allowed to play. She had to pretend to be a boy when she was young. Then she went across and played in, in Italy for AC Milan and played indeed for Italy in the end and took citizenship. And, and so a lot of her story has made me angry at the the well really the men in suits that stopped her flourishing here and that happened for thousands of women of course I was just wondering what was anger one of the main emotions when you were researching and writing this book I mean presumably there were bits of joy and glee as well but did you get quite fired up reading about those days yeah and I think the thing that surprised me the most was just the like the complete and utter nakedness of of the uh, reasoning behind banning women's football or stopping them play like there was no there was no sugarcoating it or trying to make it more palatable or hiding it behind a veneer of like respectability or whatever it was all just very very blunt <laughs> like this shouldn't be played we don't think it's suitable we don't think women should be playing for sport um you know they're too dainty and frail or whatever it may be like it was real sort of you know kind of viciously obvious um and yeah no attempt to sort of kind of put on a um a, a veneer of it being about um a medical thing or anything like that it was just you know we don't want women playing this game um and so that that's the thing that surprised me the most i think maybe most irritated was the just how utterly open <laughs> it was um and yeah you know kind of how unashamedly like anti uh, women's football, uh, so many um, men, obviously, in positions of authority um, were at the time, um, at various different times. Um, so yeah, I suppose, yeah, not much, not much anger per se, just a bit of surprise, uh, things like that. And then um, a lot of respect as well, because, you know, one of the things that I was reflecting on quite a lot um, recently is that you know, there's been quite a lot of um, research done into the Dick Kerr ladies and the teams that played sort of during the war whilst uh, men were fighting and, um, you know, women's teams sort of grew out the factories. Um, there's been, you know, and that's been down to the brilliant work done by people like Gail Newsom, who's basically dedicated her life to researching Dick Kerr ladies and highlighting their story and real, like, pioneering individual efforts um, of a researcher to to telling telling their history um but and there's so you know there's been a lot on that kind of era of, of women's football of late and of unearthing that history but if anything it's the ones that came after you know when the ban was in place and when um and, and shortly after the ban was lifted when the support wasn't really there that actually you know sort of the rose riley's of the of the day um were if anything sort of more pioneering because they were consciously defying a ban and pushing to play a game that her had been banned whereas the ones in their 20s were sort of on a bit of a rising tide were getting big attendances there were obviously dissenters massively but uh broadly speaking there was a, a layer of like genuine interest and people treating them um with a degree of respect um, and they were able to play, you know, they had access, they could get go and play at Goodison in front of 50 odd thousand people. But the ones who, um, if anything, were from the sort of in between the like, sort of lost generation of women's football that never really gets talked about that defied the ban and played after it, I think are the ones that sort of need shouting about the most. Mm, absolutely. 
Well, there'll be so much more in the book because it comes right up to the present day, of course, uh, out in the middle of June, as just mentioned, and will be available in the When Saturday Comes shop. Indeed, talking about bringing us up to date, Susie, the Euro's fast approaching. The wall chart will be in the next uh, edition of the magazine. In the previous magazine, though, there was a bit of a downer of a piece, not about the tournament, full of excitement about the tournament, but about some of the stadium choices that have been made. Was that something you felt as well? Hundred percent. Um, yeah, no, I was. I, I raised it as soon as they were announced, way back at you know when England bid for the tournament um, and announced the list of stadiums. I was like, I think this lacks ambition, um, and asked a few people at the FA about it. Um, and there are a few different reasons for it. In that, like, there was cities had to and councils had to bid to host it, and clubs did. And then you know you've got the issue of some of the lesser known teams maybe won't get the bigger crowds that you know the likes of the England games will and stuff like that but for me that was all a little bit desperate and you know not really good enough reasons to not just really go all out for it um and you know the other question was is that they were at that time um targeting double the number of tickets available that were available for the 2017 Euros so in in that sense they felt they were being very ambitious at the time but at the same time, that didn't take into account the fact that we were going to have a, a Women's World Cup that would grow things further in Europe, um, being played in France in 2019, um, and also just did not take into account the just rapid growth of the game generally, it's rapid professionalism. And yeah, so they've been really caught out. The fact that they added Old Trafford as a sort of late addition to host the opening game is a good thing. It shows that, you know, the FA actually saw the problem and responded to it a bit and have tried to do something about it. But it's really disappointing for me that, you know, particularly all of the England games are sold out and sold out months before the tournament. So there's no reason why they couldn't have... um, couldn't have played those games in the likes of you know an Ellen Road or um, St James's Park because there's none up that way or or Anfield or Stamford Bridge or the new Spurs Stadium you know like we've got the games uh, the opening game at Old Trafford of course but then England playing at Brighton and Southampton lovely grounds but they could have gone you know for one that has a significantly bigger capacity or a couple that have a significantly uh, bigger capacity to be able to um uh to really really kind of sell those games and and put on a show and then the knockout grounds as well you know once you're into knockout rounds i think they could have been wildly more ambitious with those um so yeah there's like some disappointing things logistically lee sports village is just one of the worst places to get to so the idea of putting games there at all i think is a bit of a joke the academy manchester city academy stadium um part you know same as lee sports village behind the goals it's um standing and you can't have standing in your way for games so they've got to either find a way to put in seats or the capacity is reduced even further and you've not got any fans standing behind the goals so there's like so many different problems but um you know the warning the flags were raised at the time by myself and others said you know kind of similar what you know this, this is not not um doing the tournament the best justice um but yeah i mean it is what it is and hopefully the opening game at old trafford really kind of starts to spur interest in the tournament as a whole and people what you really want is you want people to have a bit of a feeling that they got in the uh, uh in 2012 during the olympics where people just wanted to be a part of it in any way and so you know i went and watched paralympic sport i've never watched paralympic sport before live in my life but i just wanted to be in that area and in that vibe for the time and had it was one of the best sporting experiences i've had um so you sort of want you hope that it can somehow like 
gather that level of um, interest. Um, but yeah, only time will tell really, I suppose, or whether it is able to sort of do that. As I say, we don't want to focus on the negatives though, because the, 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 it will be a, a joyous thing. And so I'm wondering which teams or individuals are you looking forward to watching the most? In terms of teams, like, I think um, for me, the dark horse of the tournament, and it's not really a dark horse because they've done so well at the World Cup and uh, Olympics. But Sweden, I think, is not being talked enough as a, about as a contender enough. Um, really like strong team, really, really great squads. Um from front to back, uh, you know, you've got interest from the Women's Super League in there with, you know, the likes of Magda Eriksson, um, the Chelsea captain, Sina Blackstinius, who's uh, forward at Arsenal now. Uh, you've got Jonna Anderson, um, former Chelsea fullback, uh, who had a really, really fantastic season as well. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole list of really, really great players in that squad. Um, they got to the the final of the Olympics and lost to Canada in the final beat England in the third place playoff at the World Cup in 2019. So, yeah, I think a lot of people are talking about Germany who are, have won the tournament more times than anyone else. Spain, because of how well Barcelona are doing at the moment, but Spain are not Barcelona. Obviously, people are talking about England as the host nation, but for me, Sweden, the dark horses. And then in terms of player I'm most excited about, um, it's got to be Ada Hegerberg um, being back in the folds with Norway for the first time in five years-ish um, since she stepped back after saying that she you know wasn't totally happy with the way um the norwegian football federation were handling uh women's football and um you know grassroots girls football in particular but also the conditions and facilities of the national team too um and you know just having she missed the world cup as a result but having the um the you know kind of champions league record goal scorer who scored provided an assist and held up the ball really well for the first goal in the Champions League final just a few weeks back um, in the Euros in what is actually a really, really strong Norwegian midfield and forward line in particular is a bit of a game changer. And it's in England's group as well. So that's going to be really like the game against England is going to be really, I'm going to be really excited to see how, you know, the likes of Alex Greenwood and Millie Bright and, um, you know, who probably the most likely starting centre-back pair uh, partnership um, handle adder's movement physicality like just presence in the box um which is just kind of one of the best if not the best in the world at the moment fantastic because the a tournament always needs those individual narratives and that sounds like a brilliant one well apart from talking about the wonderful new book and the euros we've got you here as our latest guest curator for the when saturday comes museum of football First of all, I'd like you to donate to the museum a match. I was thinking about this quite hard um, because there's so many. Like, I, I was thinking I'd go for a women's football match naturally yeah. um, because they're often underrepresented. But um, and I was, I was, there's lots of matches that could be in. I was thinking the, um, you know, the 1999 um, World Cup final, which the US won in front of a then record crowd, um, real historic moment for the development of women's football across the world but I th it has to be more recent it's got to be the um, Barcelona v Real Madrid mm. uh, match Champions League quarterfinal at the new Camp because it's just such a game changer um, I really unfortunately couldn't go despite supposed to <laughs> uh, having supposed to be going because um, of childcare problems but um, yeah it like the major <laughs> major FOMO um, 
and regret of, yeah. of not being at that game. But from by all accounts, it was just the most incredible, rocking atmosphere. Um, a new club record crowd, over 91,000 fans. And what's most impressive about it is that it was just a real, like, vocal crowd, an animated crowd, whereas uh, yeah, often at women's games when you get big crowds, there's a bit of a passive audience there or a neutral audience there, you know, World Cup finals and things like that. Um, it's not very partisan, but this was different. This was like the Barcelona fans were really properly embracing their team. And um, the, like I think the impact of that game is going to, like echo throughout women's football in Europe in particular for quite a long time. Um, you know, you look at the Champions League final where Barcelona lost to uh, Lyon pretty emphatically, but it was a really impressive turnout of Barcelona fans to the extent that you thought at the final whistle, Barcelona had won. They were so loud supporting the players that they had just watched sort of real, give it their all kind of stuff. Clearly, that record crowd and then the it was broken in the semi-final when they played um, Wolfsburg as well um, was just a real um, sort of eye-opening moment for the the wider fan base of Barcelona to their women's team and uh, yeah real real special moment um, I think it was about 30 coaches um, made the trip from Barcelona to um to Turin uh, over like 16 hours traveling each way uh, for the final, as well as then people getting on planes and stuff too. Um, and that just, you know, kind of shows how dedicated the club's fan base now is to that team, which I think is a real, real moment in the development of sort of, yeah, the fan base of women's football in Europe, which, yeah, that's why that gets in, even though it's sort of a modern game. That's fantastic. It's, it's about time we moved into this century in yeah. so many ways so, in the museum. So uh, as as the self-appointed manager of the museum, I have to think how I'm going to represent this match. And I think I'm going to have a model of one of those supporters' coaches, I've decided. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next of all, after that fantastic edition, please give us a player for the museum. Yeah, so again, I, was, I started off thinking historically in this, you know, of the people like Lily Parr from the... Um, uh from the Dicker ladies uh team that played during the war years there's you know the likes of kelly smith you know england record goal scorer until she was overtaken by ellen white recently you know real fantastic players but um i i think again a little bit more recently um you know, i want to put in megan rapino just uh, like uh, impact on the game beyond the pitch as well as on it um yes. and the, the, how she handled the pressure during that world cup um particularly the semi-final against france where the us played france just after trump had called mm. uh, her out for having said she wouldn't go to the white house um months and months before the world cup but the clip emerged just ahead of it and he said you know you need to sort of walk the walk before you can talk the talk, win something before you 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 talk about whether you'd come to the White House or not sort of thing. And she was just like in the press conferences, she was just absolutely phenomenal uh, um, discussing the issue. And then it was impressive actually as well that the manager, Joe Ellis, sort of just let her talk about things off the pitch um, in those press conferences and gave her the space to do that and to respond. But then she steps on the pitch and is absolutely incredible in that semi-final and scores twice a penalty and then a, a really nice goal low into the into the far corner and carries 
the United States team into the final, having had all the pressure of, you know, the president of um, the global superpower that is the US, um, having called you out before it and told you you need to perform, is just like beyond incredible <laughs> that she was able to do that to finish as the player of the tournament with the golden boot um, and the World Cup trophy, having taken down the president, um, having highlighted pride because it was um, mm. during uh, pride in France um, and, you know, just real kind of game-changing moment and human being in women's football, I think. Brilliant. She, she deserves a sculpture. Uh, and I think of that fantastic goal celebration. I can picture that in the museum. Superb. Okay, Susie, wonderful stuff. Let's have an object for the museum. Again, again I'm going for an American object. I was thinking that um, Brandy Chastain's bra would be a great one, which I know hangs on her wall at her home at the moment. So we would have to probably... Uh, Do one of those loans and have a little, little card. Loan it. Yeah, kindly, exactly. kindly loaned. <laughs> Exactly. But yeah, the um, I mean, it's I, the image is on the front front of my book. That's how like iconic it is uh, yeah. of her on her knees, having um, scored the penalty to win uh, the US the World Cup in 99 in front of that world record crowd that has is yet to be surpassed uh, for an international game. Um, and yeah, arms aloft, having ripped off her shirt, just it's up being such a natural celebration uh, that, you know, you see all the time in the men's game, but obviously, you know, when it's a woman, um, you've got breasts, it's a little bit different, but yeah, she's there in a sports bra, um, just like in the moment. And it's just such an iconic image and moment that, yeah, I thought the bra would be a good one because uh, it represents more than just that match. Superb. And another thing we can sell a spin-off of in the museum shop, which is glorious. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. <laughs>